0: Section 77 of The Catholic's Ready Answer This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org Recording by Emerson Wells at FormulaFreak.com The Catholic's Ready Answer by Rev. M. P. Hill Section 77, A Change of Religion Objections To change one's religion, or even one's communion, is a very serious and solemn, nay, a very awful step to take, whatever that religion may be. R. F. Littledale. And why should I become a Roman Catholic? Is it possible that all those hard things I have heard said against the Roman Catholics have no foundation? And why should I leave a religion that has afforded me so much help and consolation? And then, too, Providence has placed me under the guidance of spiritual directors, who bid me quiet my fears and remain where I am, what warrant should I have for rejecting their counsel? The Answer But whence those fears? If you derive so much help and consolation from your present religion, whence your misgivings? Is it not true that you see strong reasons for abandoning your religion, however much help and consolation it may have yielded? The greatest help you can receive in your journey to eternity is that which shall place you on the right way, no matter what consolation you may feel in traveling on the wrong way. The question of questions to be considered by any of our separated brethren, whose minds are not quite at rest about their religion, is not whether there is some good or even much good in the religion of their birth, but whether there is not another religion to which it is their duty to belong. The question of help and consolation being left to that providence of whose dispositions they make so much in the present anxious situation. It has unfortunately been the habit of recent controversialists, particularly those of the higher Anglican type, to confuse the issue in their attempt to stop the stream of conversions flowing Romeward. Dr. Littledale, for instance, is careful to remind the wavering that nothing can justify their becoming Catholics but a reasonable belief that they shall be obeying God's will better and shall know more truth about him than formerly. But as Dr. Ryder reminds him, these are just not the points to be considered. It is not a question of obeying God's will better, but of obeying it at all, nor of knowing more truth about him, but of knowing the truth about his church. It is a question of the esse, not of the bene esse, in other words, of simply being in the church of God, and not of being well or ill in it, though well-being will necessarily follow admission into the church if one cooperates with grace. Writers of this school, in order to show that converts to Romanism will not be better off as Romanists, work upon their fears by exhibiting all the abuses, real or imaginary, that have ever been laid at the door of the church, and, of course, never a word about the work of sanctification that has been wrought and still is being wrought in its members by the church, or of the peace of mind which thousands upon thousands have experienced on entering the church." Controversy on questions of dogma, moral, or history may be prolonged indefinitely, and with a degree of plausibility by a clever anti-Catholic disputant. But there is one thing that should at least give him pause, and that is the explanation of the fact that countless men and women, many of them of the first order of intelligence, whose thoughts and judgments about Rome have been steeped in prejudice as deep as Dr. Littledale's, have at length by becoming Catholics entered what has been for them to the end of their days The city of peace. The number of those who have not found such contentment, or who have returned to the city of confusion, might almost be counted on the fingers of both hands. Another mode of working on the fears of those who are looking Romeward is to enlarge upon the tremendous importance of the step they are tempted to take. The opening sentence of Dr. Littledale's Plain Reasons Against Joining the Church of Rome, quoted above, furnishes a typical instance of this species of rhetoric. We call the reader's attention to the climactic arrangement of epithets. To change one's religion, he says, or even one's communion is a very serious and solemn, nay, a very awful step to take, whatever that religion may be. We shall not take him too literally in the last clause, whatever that religion may be, for we can hardly suppose he would deliver a sentence like the one we are quoting to the idolatrous natives of the Zambezi, endeavoring to impress them deeply with a sense of the awful responsibility they were assuming in becoming Christians. But Rome is more of a bugaboo. Imagine the effect of these words on the Tamora's conscience of one who looks to his Anglican pastor for guidance in a matter which is, we admit, certainly important. Though really I fancy that here and there an Anglican reader of the book would retain sufficient coolness of judgment to see that where is a question of escaping from a flood and getting into some ark of salvation, it is not the awfulness of the step that would impress one so much as its absolute necessity as a means of self-preservation. As a matter of fact, a thought that often visits the minds of converts is that of the awful risk they had incurred by remaining so long outside the church of God no less mischievous, is the effect of another device of the controversialist, that, namely, of harping perpetually on the fact that Providence has placed Anglicans where they are and that consequently there is a presumption in favor of their remaining there. On the face of things, Dr. Littledale goes on to say, this step at least looks like a revolt against God's will, since we were born and reared in our first creed without any act or choice of our own, and just as he was pleased to ordain for us. A sweet and consoling thought it is that providence has placed us where we are. We shall not have a word to say against an Anglican's appreciation of the work of providence in placing him in a communion which retains so much of a Catholic truth. We are only anxious that full justice be done the work of providence, which has placed many Anglicans in a communion, in which it is natural for them to have serious doubts whether, after all, Anglicanism is no more than a halfway house on the road to Rome, doubts which they must resolve, and which they can certainly resolve by the aid of ordinary logic and the grace of God. And this brings us to the consideration of the true logical bearings of the situation in the case of the doubting ones. Many honest inquirers are seriously hindered by the complexity which they throw into the problem. They seek an answer to many questions, whereas there is only one. They are exercised by the question of infallibility, or by the abuses of the Roman court in past centuries, or by the veneration of relics, and they pass into a bewildered, perhaps a despondent, state of mind from one to another of these subjects, and make little or no progress toward the truth. The one great question that should occupy their attention is where shall I find a church which is divinely commissioned to lead me and others into the way of salvation, a church therefore which speaks in the name of Christ and with a consciousness of divine authority? And this is not only the leading question but the one most easily solved. The great outlines of the church of God are clearly enough exhibited in Holy Writ. And one great distinguishing feature of the church was that it was to go forth and announce the gospel with all the authority of him who sent it on its mission. Ponder the following words, Going therefore, teach ye all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you all days, even to the consummation of the world. Matthew chapter 28 verses nineteen and twenty the apostles and their successors, even to the consummation or end of the world, were to teach in the name of Christ and therefore with a claim to authority and the perpetuity of their authority as well as of their teaching was to be sealed by the perpetual presence of Christ in their midst and again, he that heareth you heareth me, and he that despiseth you despiseth me, Luke chapter ten, verse sixteen moreover the paraclete was to abide with them forever john chapter 14 verses 16 and 18 and he was to teach them all truth bearing on man's salvation john chapter 16 verse 13. and we find the apostles actually exercising this authority as the teachers and rulers of the church they act as the vicegerents of christ and speak in no faltering tones Notably, at the General Assembly of the Apostles and Ancients in Jerusalem, does this consciousness of authority distinguish their utterances. After deciding the question that has brought them together, they write to Antioch and the other places concerned, saying, among other things, It hath seemed good to the Holy Ghost and us to lay no further burden upon you than these necessary things. Acts chapter 15 verse 28 It hath seemed good to the Holy Ghost and us, The same confident sense of authority is seen in the teaching of the disciples and successors of the apostles as their acts are reported in the writings of those who are known as the apostolic fathers. Indeed, there is no age of the church in which the successors of the apostles have not spoken in the most clear and decided tones. Now the church must always be found teaching with the same authority, otherwise she would fail of her mission. She would not be the pillar and ground of truth. The gates of hell would have prevailed against her contrary to the promise of her divine founder. Christ would have ceased to be with his church, whereas he promised to be with her to the end of time. The Holy Ghost, the Spirit of truth, whose presence in the church was pledged by our Lord himself, would have departed from her. The inquirer after truth is therefore confronted with these two alternatives. You must either consider Christ's promises as worthless or acknowledge that there is still a church on earth speaking infallibly in his name with his authority. And now the problem should be much simplified. The application of the above dilemma may be made thus. 1. It is admitted on all hands that the church commonly called Catholic, the church subject to the See of Rome, was founded by our Lord Jesus Christ. 2. It is the only church that speaks with authority and requires absolute submission to its teaching. Other churches are little more than schools of opinion with a certain amount of external organization, and requiring a certain degree of external conformity. Not one of them lays claim to absolute authority. Most of them boast of the absence of it. All of them acknowledge, at least virtually, that the message they are delivering to the world admits of indefinite amendment. The conclusion is inevitable. Therefore, the Roman Church is the Church of the Apostles, the Church of Christ, The conclusion we have reached is of course fatal to all branch theories for any so-called branch of the true church which repudiates the principle of authority and refuses to place itself in communion with and its submission to the one church speaking with authority is a branch of the true church only in name other aspects of the church's life and mission may indeed present themselves to inquiring minds, and many indeed are the legitimate avenues of approach by which serious minds have made their way back to the church of their fathers. But the ultimate synthesis of all modes of reasoning other than the one we have proposed will be found in the divine credentials of the teaching authority of the church. And now one word as to the position of those individual souls who have placed their destinies in the hands of their spiritual guides and find no warrant for rejecting their advice. God forbid that we should wantonly inspire distrust where confidence is reposed with such edifying submission of spirit and, doubtless, too, with much spiritual profit. We should fear that the attempt to do so might recoil upon ourselves. Nevertheless, we see a vast difference between the position of a Catholic and that of an Anglican confessor. In matters bearing on the faith, the Catholic director of consciences can speak in the name of a church which teaches with authority whereas the non-Catholic director can do no more than repeat the formulas of his Church and defend them if he finds it in his conscience to do so. For the rest, if he is consistent with his own theological principles, he can only say, follow your lights, read, inquire, pray, don't allow anything to keep you from embracing the truth, no, not even the necessity, of consulting a Catholic priest. These last words may fall unpleasantly on the ears of the Anglican or the evangelical director of consciences, but they reflect his true position. Any attempt to coerce the conscience of a penitent or even to discourage him from entering the path of free inquiry is morally wrong on Anglican and evangelical principles. End of section 77, recording by Emerson Wells at formulafreak.com.